0: with your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Hurtell. tell.
1: Ah, it's our tell show. It is Wednesday. January the 19th, the year of our Lord 2022 continues. Hope you and yours are well wherever you are across the street or around the world. Thrilled that you're with us. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, A lot to cover today. As always, we want to turn down the noise on some news cycle things we're hearing. Uh, We're also going to do a few things uh, that is Happy, sad. Uh, we're going to honor the wife of General Charles McGee, a Tuskegee Airman, a little bit later on. Uh, we're also going to talk about um, the fallacy of equal knowledge. It sounds like a cool term, doesn't it? But uh, it really gets to the heart of how we're talking about things in the media, how we're talking to each other. Uh, it even gets to how we do things on this year's show, Heard Tell itself. And more importantly, how we assume certain things will be if it just goes a certain way and how that almost never works out. And in a lot of cases, make it worse. We're going to talk about that, along with some other things as the program unfolds. But let's start with something that is going to feel like we're repeating ourselves because we're repeating ourselves. Uh, Front page of The Washington Post. Uh, A year ago, this is the headline. Biden unveiled a 200-page plan to defeat COVID. He has struggled to live on some of the key promises. Now, let's just preface all this for a moment. Uh, The pandemic does not go along political lines. Pandemics and viruses do not follow programs. They do not follow narratives. They do not follow media trends. They do not follow hashtags. Uh, A virus just reproduces itself and expands and mutates. It really doesn't care about politics. It doesn't care about narratives. It doesn't care about your priors or what you want to get accomplished. When President Biden ran for office, he, and in a lot of cases justifiably, took former President Trump to task for how he had handled the pandemic. Uh, We've been pretty clear on how we feel about things like that. President Trump did some good things. The vaccine rollout came under his watch. He was in the chair. He gets the credit for that. That was a good thing. President Trump's messaging on how to handle coronavirus was mixed at best to downright harmful and terrible in some instances. That was bad. Um, The president before did not do a great job with things like getting the testing program up and running, getting home tests available, getting regulatory issues at the FDA out of the way to get those tests in the hands of the people that need them. So President Biden ran on that. It was a hot topic during the election. President Biden won and he won promising that he was going to handle the pandemic better. That was probably not the best idea, although it was politically expedient because he can't control a virus. He cannot control uh, COVID-19, but he said he would. So now we get to judge him based on what he said he would do. So now that we're uh, just about a few weeks short here of a year into the Biden presidency, this article in The Washington Post, quoting from it, as he prepared to take office, Biden oversaw a 200 page pandemic plan that promised to restore trust in the federal government, protect essential workers and slow the coronavirus' spread. But as president, he has struggled to execute key parts of it. Again, this is The Washington Post. Page 59 promised, quote, predictable and robust federal purchasing of coronavirus tests, a pledge that industry leaders say fell far short, and Americans continue to line up to get tested while complaining they can't find home kits. Page 81 pledged to, quote, support schools in implementing COVID-19 screening tested testing. But many parents, teachers, and staff say that schools have largely been left to fend for themselves. Page 103 vowed to, quote, ensure patient safety in nursing homes by boosting staffing and vaccination, yet worker shortages persist and elderly residents lag behind on getting booster shots. Some of Biden's biggest challenges, again, reading from the Washington Post here, on executing that plan have been beyond his control, including courts that delayed and then blocked his vaccination or test mandates. Republicans who fought calls for masking and to promote vaccine disinformation, and most significantly, an unpredictable virus that has evolved to evade some protections conferred by vaccines, even as it became more transmissible. Let's pause here. Uh, Rejoining the World Health Organization does nothing to actually fix the virus. Uh, Let's just be blunt here. The World Health Organization is completely under the control of Chinese influences and wanted nothing to do with getting accurate information with how this virus came. We're not going to go down that rabbit hole right now. You can do your own homework on that. Uh, The World Health Organization has spent most of their time and money over the last year doing nanny state nonsense like chasing down vaping and smoking and obesity and sugar laws instead of preparing for a worldwide pandemic, so I don't count that as progress in any way, shape, or form. I understand we need to have a working relationship with the World Health Organization. I'm not one of those people, but we need to understand it's corrupt, it's incompetent, and it did nothing to prevent the one thing it's supposed to prevent and work towards, which is worldwide outbreaks. Now that we're off that rant, let's move back to the states. Right now, today, they have announced that the uh, website to ask for testing kits is now online. That's something the Biden administration started touting a few weeks ago. Uh, The president mentioned it specifically in an address. It's now up. You can order online from a website testing kits to come through the United States Postal Service. This is insufficient. It should have been done over a year ago, if not longer ago. We have detailed on this program and elsewhere. Again, go do your own homework. Don't take my word for this. They have had Major regulatory issues with getting home tests approved since the very beginning of this pandemic, going all the way back to February and March of 2020, when the pandemic first broke out, there were people who were trying to get new tests approved. And the FDA even went so far as to approving some tests for overseas use, but refused to use them and let them be allowed in the United States. This is just pure T bureaucratic mess. They could have approved these tests long ago. They could have got them distributed long ago. They could have flooded the market with them. They could have distributed them in places that already need them, like pharmacies, like schools, like libraries, places like this that are now getting overrun with them instead of the United States Postal Service. I don't like this plan because it's way late. It adds two extra layers of bureaucracy to something that should have been simply done months ago, if not a year ago, if not longer. And now we have the potential where you're going to go online, you're going to order these tests, and you may get them in your hands by the end of the month. Meanwhile, Omicron is ripping through the country, and there's a very good chance that part of the Omicron wave may actually abate by the time we get these tests in people's hands. The vaccine pressures and the messaging on the vaccine hasn't been much better from the administration. They don't seem to be able to settle on how to pitch vaccines to people. Now, I understand, let's not be Pollyannas here. We understand there's some people that are just anti-vax, they're not going to get a vaccine no matter what you tell them, no matter what the stats are, no matter whatever, they're just not going to do it. Granted, understood. You can't make anybody do anything. But the messaging has been mixed. The messaging should have been from the beginning, get your vaccines, and then later on when the boosters came out, get your boosters take stock of your own family and your own health and your own situation and make decisions to get on about your life. We've always had to live with the virus because we could not just stop lockdown and hunker down for the last two years that we've dealt with COVID, despite some people thinking that was going to work. It was never going to work. That was given lie by the fact that all the service workers had to keep working while all the workers that could go online or work from home did so. That's a That's a disproportionate thing that was glaring to many people. That there was a class of people who readily could work from home, who were readily unaffected as badly as some other folks, and they were some of the loudest about some of these precautions. Again, the messaging was never going to work being one size fits all. It should have been get your vaccine, get your booster. Use precautions that are appropriate for you and your health situation. If you have pre-existing conditions, if you have bad health, if you have some kind of a situation that makes you more vulnerable, you need to take more precautions. If you're healthy and you take all those precautions, get on with your life. The administration has to use some humility. And I know it's politically damaging to say, we don't know, but this is what we should do. That's what they should have done from the beginning. The last administration should have done that too. But Biden's in the chair now, and the Biden administration has made their own mess here by not being consistent in their messaging. The Biden administration has nobody to blame for this but themselves. Yes, it's a hard hand they got dealt with the COVID variant. Yes, the Omicron and Delta variants were probably not specifically predictable, but we knew there was going to be variants because the scientists have been telling us that from the beginning. They could have prepared better. They could have been better controlled. They could have been better administered. And falling back on things that don't work, like more bureaucracy, like going putting extra layers of bureaucracy to get tests in the hands of people, isn't helping your case. It just makes you look like you're flailing, which is what the Biden administration is doing right now when it comes to COVID. They're hoping it'll just kind of go away and become endemic, and people will quit racking them for them. The president's approval rating is very much in line with the dip in his approval rating with how he's handling COVID along with economic issues. When we go into this election year, those are things that are going to be held against him and his party. And they can blame COVID. They can blame messaging. They can blame other things. But a lot of that blame needs to start with themselves. They can do better. And as Americans, we deserve for them to do better. More Hertel right after this. Oh, welcome back to Tell. So why do people disagree? Oh, I know that's kind of a Pollyanna silly question. Of course, they disagree because human nature is undefeated and people like to fuss and fight. And that's why we have to have programs like Tell where we try to turn down the noise and turn down the caterwall and try to just discuss with people. We're the minority. We're not the majority of folks who like to fight and argue. It's you can do a lot of good business nowadays in media doing that thing. But why do people disagree um, over at City Journal? Uh, There's an interesting piece by uh, Yano Redstone, Uh, The Fallacy of Equal Knowledge. If we had the same information, we'd all agree, right? That's the subtitle. And it digs into something that I think is worth uh, contemplating, especially here on Hertel, where we try really hard to take big perspective on things. We try to take a broad view on things we have on people from across the spectrum and with varying point of views. Uh, We don't screen people based on their ideas. We bring them on. We hear them out. If we have a problem with something we they said, we wait until they finish, and then we ask them about it. We use discussion and conversation to try to get the information. So something that's uh, being touched on here by Redstone I think is important. Again, this is in city-journal.org, The Fallacy of Equal Knowledge. Um, assuming someone disagrees with a particular political position or claim because they're ignorant is a challenge I encounter frequently by way of context. Much of my job involves facilitating conversations about topics that make people uncomfortable. The fallacy of equal knowledge tends to emerge among people used to thinking in a specific way about a hot-button political topic. When they consider a view such as opposition to affirmative action... The idea that gender-disfiltered children may be influenced by peers or even opposition to COVID mandates, they suggest that ignorance could explain such thinking if they disagree. However, when treated as a default supposition, this outlook can stand in the way of constructive engagement. It is grounded in the often false assumption that what divides people on controversial social issues is misinformation. Pausing here. How many times in the media, everybody's obsessed over misinformation as if if we get rid of information, everybody will agree it's nonsense. That's what they're dealing with in this piece at City Journal, continuing with the piece. Uh, It then creates the idea that giving those with opposing views more or better information must always be the solution. To be clear, sometimes ignorance is a real obstacle, but recognizing that point, doesn't mean believing that all differences on controversial questions can be solved by simply getting everyone on the same page with respect to what they know about the world. No one likes to be treated or condescended to as though they simply don't know any better, but the fallacy of equal knowledge does just that. It fails to take opposing values seriously. Unfortunately, the notion is pervasive the vast majority of traditional diversity, equity, equity, and inclusion training programs are based on it. That's DEI for short. The DEI consulting firm states on its website that participants will, on completion of the course, quote, notice how their unconscious biases have been impacting their interaction with others, end quote. This is despite research on unconscious bias, showing that it does not consistently predict of problematic behavior. In fact, because this is inconsistency, the British government phased out unconscious bias training out of its programming just over a year ago, and most people in the states have abandoned it as well, by the way. Second, reading from City Journal still, the fallacy of equal knowledge also underpins certain curricula on empathy and social and emotional learning, and what otherwise known as SEL uh, in training circles. One of the biggest firms in the world of SEL tweeted last year, quote, we hold fast to the belief that our work must actively contribute to anti-racism, but the concept of anti-racism is itself infused with particular assumptions about how the world works. For example, that the right way to solve social problems is to see them through the lens of race. Ultimately, these programs are based in the assumption that by imparting information about the importance of unconscious bias and the need to adopt an anti-racist stance in this particular case, Previously reluctant people will see the error of their ways, but this commits the fallacy of equal knowledge by assuming that the same information will lead people to the same position on these issues. This fallacy may partially explain why such programming is so fraught. Strong evidence suggests that DEI training doesn't yield positive results and can even be counterproductive and generate resentment. Better options would focus on building a stronger workplace with open communication while respecting the variety of viewpoints. The upshot is missing information isn't always what makes people disagree. When we pretend that it is, we make it even harder to communicate across our political and ideological differences. That's Ayano Redstone, uh, associate professor of sociology at the university of Illinois at urban champaign and president of the mill center for the advancement of critical thinking and a fellow at the heterodox Academy writing in city journal at city-journal.org. I encourage you to read the entire piece. Why do I bring that up? Well, because this fits into what we try to do here. Uh, We give you information. We turn down the noise, but we never tell you what to think. And to the best of our ability, even though we have biases as well, we don't try to assume where you're coming from to get there to think about it. We just put out the information. We have knowledgeable guests. Uh, We have guests on from across the spectrum. We do that purposefully. Because we think the best way to get people to understand the times we're living in and to improve their discernment is to give them as broad a perspective as possible, as much good information as possible, and let them, through the ways they come to that information, because we don't know everybody's background, let them make decisions for themselves. That's a messy way to do things. You don't always get the results you want. You don't always get agreement that way. But as far as human nature goes, that's the only way I know of to try to get to some place where we're communicating honestly, let people be themselves, don't make them feel dumb for the way their biases are ingrained into them because they didn't have anything to do with that. It's not really their fault for the most part. And don't assume people's ignorance is a wicked or evil thing. Um, There's this habit we have of just assuming that if everybody knew exactly what we know and knew it exactly the way we came to know it they would come to the same conclusion. That's not true. People are different. People have different backgrounds. Even people from the same family, from the same households, grow up with very different viewpoints because they have different relationships, even within a home. Now imagine an entire country like that and imagine an entire world like that. We need to have a little bit of humility, those of us that are in the information business, which is what we're doing here. We're in the information business. We need to always remember that that business is first and foremost a people business. And you need to let people be wrong sometimes. You need to let them work things out on their own to really learn things. And that requires a lot of patience. So all we can do is put out the best information possible. We can bring in various viewpoints from across the spectrum, but you have to do the work yourself. And we have to be humble and admit we can't do that for you. It would be arrogant to think we could do it for you. We lay it out. We work hard to be as correct as we can. When we're wrong, we say so. But otherwise, it's up to you what you do with this information we put out there. But we're happy to do it because that's the best way to try to communicate in a diverse and pluralistic society. We have to respect everybody's viewpoints, even the wrong. You have to have let people have the right to be wrong sometimes. And you have to be uh, confident enough in what you think you know And be confident enough in being right and not letting that bother you and losing your bearing with them. Communication in this day and age is very hard. It's very complicated. And things like what the City Journal article talks about and what we talk about almost every day on Tell about turning down the noise and getting good information is a hard way to go about it, but it's the right way to go about it. And we encourage everybody to give it a shot. Respect people, even when they're wrong, even when you think they're really wrong. Uh, as long as they're being in good faith, cut them a little slack. Just give them good information. Be steadfast in your own principles, and it'll work itself out most of the time with people of good faith. And the people that aren't of good faith are going to expose themselves really, really quick because they're not going to want to go through that process. We'll do more tell right after this. Yeah. Ah, welcome back to tell. Okay, this is going to be fun because we get to do a little bit of inside baseball, but we still get to talk about the things we always talk about on the show. You know, I talk about young voices all the time. We have those people on there. This is the guy. This is the guy that coordinates all that. He helps me with that along with Jason Reed over in the UK. But uh, Caleb Franz, how are you, my
0: friend? Andrew, it's uh, it's a real pleasure to be on.
1: Yeah, this is cool because I'm usually talking to you about the show, and now I get to actually talk to you on the show uh, but you have your own show as well. You're coordinating for Young Voices. Just real quick, though, because I'm always talking about and I don't take the time to explain it. Uh, tell folks what Young Voices is. Uh, I'm now partnered with you guys as all. I've even got an official page with my picture and everything on it. But this thing's been around. It's very impressive. Uh, tell folks what you guys actually do, though.
0: Yeah, so uh, Young Voices, we, uh, we work with uh, young people from 18 to 35, roughly uh there's 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 a little bit of wiggle room between like what constitutes as young but <laughs> but generally speaking that's was that that's, a dig? Uh, that's well maybe you know maybe a little bit. <laughs> uh you're you're the oldest young voice that we have. Thanks. Um, but uh but we generally work with uh with young people between 18 and 35 trying to help them get their uh get their career started if they are interested in careers in um In media or in policy or in academia, specifically uh, young people who have a a slant or a lean towards the ideas of liberty and and of classical liberalism. Uh, Those are the people who we want to work towards and we want to help build up uh, and build their profile uh, in the movement.
1: And one thing that I was always impressed with from the beginning, your predecessor, Stephen Kent's good friend kind of got me into doing podcasting and things like that, um it's a non i learned really quick starting to do my own media and broadcasting and even in my writing things it's kind of like the gold rush where like everybody comes from the gold rush but the money was actually in the saloons and the gambling and all that sort of stuff there's a lot of people that just want to make money off people trying to get into media trying to start podcasts trying to get platforms you can spend a lot of money and not get anywhere in a hurry and that's one of the things that really impressed me about young voices is is, is you guys are trustworthy you work with these young people and you're not trying to take advantage of them. You really are trying to boost them up a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think, um, you know, one of one of the components uh, that, uh, that that you're going to be involved with, actually, uh, is uh, that I'm, I'm really proud of. This is the mentorship program that we have. And, and that's going to be something that I think uh, is going to help cultivate uh, really good um, results with really good people. Uh, and I think that's a that's a key component in anything that uh, people do uh, throughout throughout their life, but especially in something as as dicey as the political arena or in in policy and politics. Um, when when we're talking about ideas of liberty, uh, I think it's really important that we have really good, decent people uh, showcasing those ideas. And uh, I I think that fortunately at Young Voices we uh, we are capable of doing just that.
1: Yeah, I'm talking to Caleb Franz of Young Voices. Uh, the thing about that is that's so important to me is when, when we start talking about you know the politics realm and getting outside of just the news cycle and just reacting to everything, I think it's really, really important. And the reason I was so excited to do the mentorship part of this isn't because I'm such a great guy, but it's because... This thing goes fast. And like, you know, we we seem like we've been talking about millennials for 10 or 15 years now. Well, they're all pushing 40 or over 40. The next generation's already, you know, starting to come out of college. The next generation behind them is in the middle of high school. This thing keeps going really, really fast. And if you don't set up people to come alongside you and people that are coming behind you, Whatever your ideology is, whatever your politics are, uh, you're just not leaving anything if you're not carrying these people along with you as you work. And I I think that's something that our politics for the last 20 or 30 years, as we kind of went into the mass media that went into the social media realm, I think that got lost because everybody just kind of got used to following a big name or following a, a superstar commentator or a radio host or a TV star. I don't think there had been a lot of mentorship for people kind of more my age, their mid forties, the end of the Xers, the, the older millennials. This is something I think is really, really important if we're going to have good ideas going forward.
0: Yeah. You know, um, and and this is going to be something that we'll, uh, we'll get into here here in a little bit, once we, we get into uh, the programming aspect of it, but uh, something that I've really become much more of over the past year or two is I think I'm much more of a, a communitarian um, in the sense that you know I, I, I believe in the ideas of liberty and everything, but I, I, that idea of community, it's something that uh, people on the left tend to like to prop up quite a bit. but for really bad reasons, you know, <laughs> the, the classical liberals are always been the ones who are like, we can do this by ourselves if we work uh, together and cooperate with one another and interact. Uh, with with people in our community and people in our own space, um, and I, I really think that's a key component in making all of this work. Uh, and that's you know hopefully that's uh, that's what I'm I'm trying to to do a little bit in my own way uh, through uh, through what I'm doing at Young Voices as well.
1: Yeah, Caleb France joining us on heard Tell. Um, now we on our program we bring on everybody. I've had uh, very progressive politicians. We have a lot of conservatives. We actually. Put this program out on conservative talk radio. You're from the libertarian wing, uh, so talk about that for a minute because I know we like to kid online our libertarian friends a little bit sometimes because uh, y'all got some. Tendencies. Well, there's plenty of
0: content there. Yeah, so. <laughs> there's, there's never
1: a lack a content, yeah. but. Um, there's a lot of overlap to people uh, across spectrum on across issues. Just throw me the pitch for a minute for the audience that maybe doesn't listen to the libertarian side of the argument. That kind of throw them the the pitch of where you come from with your libertarianism. You talked about the communalism, which I think is a big big deal. Something I'm working really hard on of, you know, trying to find that common cause with just about anybody. The whosoever wills, we used to call it in church, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but just pitch it for folks that maybe just know the online caricature of it. Uh, practically speaking, just talk about why you're a libertarian, why you identify with that and what you're trying to do in that realm.
0: You know, uh, I I think the the best way to go to go about it is uh, the little phrase that that Matt Kibbe came up with and and wrote a book uh, about called Don't Hurt People and Don't Take Their Stuff. At the end of the day, that's that's really that's really it, you know, um, I, can, I can cooperate with other people and, and, and get along with other people who have wildly different uh, cultural beliefs or personal beliefs, uh, whether they be much more liberal or much more conservative. Uh, I tend to skew a, a little bit more conservative on, on a lot of issues uh, whenever it's like cultural issues or something like that. But, but when it comes to should the government get involved in fill in the blank, uh, the answer is almost always no. Uh, and that I think is at its foundation, you can, you can have a lot of very different beliefs in uh, the libertarian sphere um, without wanting to impose force uh, on people and, and having people cooperate uh, in a healthy manner, which kind of gets back to the community aspect of, of what I was mentioning earlier uh, is really fundamental. Uh, in, in my opinion to to the ideas of liberty and making making it all work if if, if you it's it's great you know I, I like the idea of just going out and and getting a getting a cabin in the woods and just saying you know forget everyone and and just you know hunkering down and, and living my, out my own life uh, in that way. Uh, that's really appealing but at the end of the day, um, if you don't, cooperate with your neighbor, and if you don't uh, convince them that the ideas of liberty is, is something that's really important, there's nothing that's really going to stop them from trying to impose uh, their views on you. So we have to, to be able to talk with one another, and we have to be able to cooperate with one another, uh, and I think that's going to be the best way to, to keep the ideas of liberty uh, safe and and as secure as possible.
1: Yeah, talking to Caleb Frentz. Uh, Let's make sure we got the nomenclature right, because I think people misunderstand when we're talking about liberty. I say it all the time. I say, you know, I want my general philosophy is I want the most freedom and liberty for the most amount of people possible That just kind of as a baseline. When we're talking liberty, though, um, what do you mean by liberty? I know it's a big word. We could spend, you know, a whole college semester just describing liberty. But what does that word actually mean to you? Because I know people call it the liberty movement. Libertarians like to use that term but what does liberty actually mean to you?
0: To me, liberty means uh, being able to pursue your own happiness um, without it coming at the expense of someone else. Uh, and that's, that's really about as bare bones as it can get. What that looks like um, uh, and how we can make that work beyond that uh, is open for a much broader uh, conversation and interpretation. Uh, I think there are key values um, that help make that underlying philosophy work. But at the end of the day, letting people live their lives uh, to the to the extent that they see fit. You know, I'm trying to figure out my own life uh, and I'm sure you are, too. And I don't have enough time or bandwidth to try to figure out everyone else's. Uh, and that's that's basically the the gist of uh, whenever I think of, of of liberal ideas, truly liberal, classical liberal ideas. Um, it It is is the essence of of what a lot of the founders would talk about and and, and what a lot of them uh, would promote uh, as far as their ideas go. It's just getting uh, people out of each other's lives.
1: Yeah, talking to Caleb Franz. We're going to take a quick break on her Tell when we come back. We're going to talk about some of those people from the past he just mentioned because he has a program where he's reviewing those people, Profiles in Liberty, uh, his show, and we're going to ask him about that when we come back right after this. Ah, Welcome back to Herd Tell. Having a little fun with my friend, Caleb Franz. Uh, We talked about your stuff with Young Voices, but you yourself are also a content creator. We call them nowadays in the fancy parlance of the biz. Uh, Profiles and Liberty, you do your own podcast. I love this stuff because I'm a a history guy at heart. That's kind of like my core thing is history. I love when we explain things like liberty and freedom and our system of government. By going through historical figures, and that's what you've really been doing on profiles and liberty, isn't it?
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, just for a, a little bit uh, of background on on the show, I used to have uh, another podcast. It was called uh, Liberty. and it was kind of a, a catch all on, uh, on on content creation. And, and I would have uh, interviews, and I would ha- I would do solo episodes. Um, and then I did that for about four years, and uh, toward the end, I, I was getting a little bit burnt out with, uh, with the same old song and dance, as, as they say, uh, and I, I tried to figure out what is it that, that really it makes me passionate, and what, what is it that, that I can really get behind, because I still wanted to create some content, um, but I didn't know if I wanted to, to keep doing that all the time, Um, and what I realized after, and including after some, some feedback from some of my friends was that some of the best episodes I did on the Liberty were history centric. Um, and that those were also the ones that I had, I felt the most satisfied with. I felt the most, uh, purpose with. Um, so I decided, you know, I, I want to not only tell stories and tell, um, tell about the, the individuals who inspire me, but I want to give people in the liberty movement, heroes to, to be able to look up to, uh, essentially. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone who's featured on this show that I have is, is going to be someone that you specifically will look up to, but it means that there's going to be someone there for a little bit of everyone. Um, and in the first season that, that I had, which started uh, which started in July 4th of last year, uh, ran for eight episodes uh, of Profiles in Liberty, and that uh, was on the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Um, we went through uh, figures like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and Benjamin Franklin um, and uh, a few other people who, you know, you, you or, or members of your audience may not be as familiar with with people like George Wythe uh, or uh, Caesar Rodney and, and individuals like that. And then this upcoming season, which is premiering on February the 3rd, uh, is going to be on, uh, it's it's dubbed the Equalizers. And uh, essentially it is uh, about those lesser known or, or some of those unsung heroes who, who try to fulfill the promise of July 4th, which is that all men are created equal. Uh, and that extends to both men and women. And uh, the the idea is that, like with the first episode, we have uh, a really great episode queued up for on Frederick Douglass that I'm very excited about. Um, and a lot of these individuals, again, are meant to inspire, uh, the listener, uh, to, to be less negative. It's easy to doom scroll on Twitter and, (laughs) and, and go into, uh, how, how terrible everything is and how terrible every, everyone is. Um, but that's not really going to help promote a, a healthy culture, especially within the Liberty movement. Um, whereas finding those heroes who, Yes, they had flaws, but their underlying mission was to move forward with, with, uh, with, a, with a better future. Um, that's something to look at that, and that's something to be inspired by, and that's something that I want to highlight.
1: Yeah, and one episode you did uh, of the first season, I think, plays into a few things we've talked about with you today. We talked about your communitarianism and leading into that. Mm-hmm. You did the big names like Adams and Jefferson, but you also did one of my favorites from history that doesn't get a lot of play, uh, Benjamin Rush. And one of the reasons I find him so fascinating is a lot of people don't realize later in his life, he became the go between when Adams and Jefferson had their falling out. And we don't have that, that great coda to those two men's lives of where they're talking about each other. when they go on, you know, even on their deathbeds, they were talking about each other. Uh, We don't have any of that without Benjamin Rush being the between on those two. So in addition to the country, he also kind of assaged what we know about two of our great founding fathers uh, just on his own.
0: Yeah, that's right. That was a uh, that 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 episode in particular was one that was really fun to write um, and one really fun to tell because that's one of my favorite stories uh, in history. Um, because after the election of eighteen hundred. Uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams had a huge falling out um, because that election got very ugly. If we think that elections today are ugly, it still pales in comparison to to some of the things that went through that one. Um, And uh, and there was a serious falling out, but it was also a very crucial time in our history Uh, after George Washington stepped down that was essentially passing the torch from one person within essentially his own party, he was apolitical, but he very much aligned with the Federalists much more um, uh, from, from one person within their own party to another. This was a test of can two people from two completely separate political parties be able to peacefully transfer power? Uh, and the answer was, yes, we could do that, but it came at the expense of the, the friendship of these, these two extraordinary figures in, in history. And they went uh, over a decade without even talking to uh, one another after this election. And then uh, Benjamin Rush was a a mutual friend between the two. And he was able to finally uh, broker the peace uh, right before he died. And it was uh, actually his death that helped sort of solidify that their friendship would uh, would continue on.
1: Yeah, I love how we have these big sweeping things in history and, and these, these people like the founding fathers and others, they kind of get, they call they kind of get marbleized because we get used to seeing them on their statues and (laughs) then the DC (laughs) memorials. And we forget these are people and these are men uh, and the women in history too, but we forget they're just normal people. And they had, you know, they had grudges and they had bad days and they had pettiness and they had, but um, one thing I love about this series and what you're doing with it in history in general is, if you really break stuff down to just the people and get to the stories of the people, you can really start seeing the building blocks of what made America great in the first place. I think a little bit better than just sometimes the terminology, which kind of gets lost in uh, buzzwords and things like that. But at least to me, I think when you start seeing how these people in their relationships, like the, (laughs) the fighting that went on, like the, the ugliness of that election you talk about, that election is, is immensely important on how we had elections going forward. Um mm-hmm. I think things like that just bring it alive in a way that some of our terminology and some of our current debate on things like Twitter where everything's just buzzwords and hit and run. I think that's where you really start getting a feel of this and it becomes more real to you than just terminology.
0: Yeah. And I, I think it it also kind of helps give us sort of a template on how we can react uh in our own in our own lives and in our own time. See that even even some of these great men and, and women uh, were subject to to faults and to failure and and seeing how they recovered from those faults and failures uh, is something that is incredibly important because we have those things too. Uh, it's it's we've progressed a lot as a society, but we haven't progressed uh, we haven't progressed beyond beyond failing in our own lives. Um, so it's going to happen. And being able to see how, how these other other great figures throughout history have, were able to move on beyond that um, is going to be crucial in the in the next steps uh, for for wherever we decide to go to uh, in the future.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And uh, we talk about it on our show all the time. Uh, human nature is undefeated. So that's why it's important to do history stuff because you can you can tell how people gonna act because they haven't really changed that much. Uh Caleb Franz, appreciate your time so much today. The new season of the podcast comes out on the third. Tell folks where they can find you on your social media, the podcast, and the other things you have going on with Young Voices.
0: Yeah, so uh you can follow me on Twitter at Caleb Franz. It's just my first and last name. I got pretty lucky in that (laughs) in that sense. Um uh, you can follow young voices on Twitter at young voices org, uh, and then profiles and Liberty, uh, you can get that anywhere where you get your podcast, whether it be Spotify or Apple. Um, it's, uh, on all podcast uh, services. So check it out, subscribe, give us a review and it would be very appreciated
1: all right he called me old and he took a dig at my twitter handle that's enough out of you young man uh all right boss i appreciate you giving us a little time uh you are my superior young voices but you're a joy to work with we'll have you back on soon and definitely we'll be following the podcast because i love that stuff thank you so much for the time today hey
0: thanks andrew I appreciate it
1: thank you sir back to her Tell A uh, historical note to end the show. Usually we try to do a lighter topic, but this is an important topic. It's a little sad, but it's mostly a celebration. Uh, Charles McGee died at the age of 102. If you don't know who Charles McGee was, that's General McGee to you. He was promoted Brigadier General a few years ago by then President Donald Trump, pinning a star on him. He is one of the last surviving Tuskegee Airman from World War II, a true American hero, a true American legend. Uh, he was also a great ambassador for the Tuskegee Airmen for many, many years. He was president of their association. Uh, he retired from the United States Air Force after his initial career in the Army Air Corps, which became the Air Force in 1947. Uh, when he retired in the 70s, he retired a colonel and he was honorarily promoted and General McGee passed away. On January 16th. Uh, I mention this because it's important to mark these passings. We're almost out of World War II veterans. Uh, it wasn't that long ago when I was a kid, everybody knew a World War II veteran or two or three, and just about anybody, uh, especially men of a certain age, you just kind of assumed they were World War II veterans. They were everywhere. We're almost completely out of them, especially people like the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, a year or two ago, we lost the last of the Doolittle Raiders. These special groups of people who did very special things in that war are almost all gone. And Charles McGee as a representative for all of his life of the very brave and very important Tuskegee airmen is very high on the list among them. Uh, You can read uh, all the many, many tributes about uh, General McGee. Uh, He spent over 30 years in the army air forces in the air force. He logged 6,308 flying hours. That's a ridiculous amount And a remarkable 409 combat missions across two different wars. Uh, Of course, he served in World War II. He also served in Korea and piloted a photographic reconnaissance plane base near Saigon during the Vietnam War, making him a three-war veteran, going on at least 100 combat missions in both conflicts. That's an amazing record of service by any standard in each war. His plane was hit by enemy fire both times on the right wing. Call that whatever you want. Interesting tidbit. Um, Donald Trump, as we mentioned, pinned an honorary star on him, and when he was uh, honored at the White House, kind of one of his last public appearances, he looked spry, he was alert, um, and he was also one of three centurion veterans to present the coin toss at the Super Bowl that same year. Quoting him, "Folks say you're a hero. I don't see it that way." General McGee said in 2018 when he celebrated his 99th birthday by piloting a private Honda jet between Dallas and Hampton Roads. I just say life's been a blessing. His mother had died when he was very, very young. He graduated high school in Chicago in 1938 and spent a year with the Civilian Conservation Corps, earning money to try to get into the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He studied engineering and joined the ROTC. By the time his draft card arrived. He decided that the infantry was not for him. Quote, I knew what the foot soldiers had to face, so I said something had to be better. Upon learning that an all-black aviation unit was training nearby at Canute Field, at the time the squadron only included mechanics and support personnel. He applied to the Tuskegee program, was accepted as a pilot. He got his flight school orders in October of 42. Uh, Two days later, two days after he married his college classmate, Francis Nelson, And he nicknamed his plane for her and also because he called it kitten after her. And because his crew chief, quote, kept her purring like a kitten, he ended up with the Tuskegee Tuskegee, uh, Army Airfield in Alabama, but was puzzled at having to change seats when the train crossed the Mason-Dixon line because of the Jim Crow laws. This is the kind of nonsense these brave men had to still face in a segregated military. Um, He served, of course, in Italy with the famous Red Tail Squadron, the 332nd fighter group, flew more than 100 patrols, escorting and strafing missions, then again in Korea and Vietnam. What a legend. Um, This article in the Washington Post ends this way. Um, Flying, he said, was something of religious experience. Quote, there's no way to tell you how it was in an airplane alone at 35,000 feet. No noise, no clutter of the earth. It's a feeling I didn't know would be there when I first became a pilot, but it's what kept me up there. He then winked, the piece says, and quote, it's probably the closest I'll ever get to heaven. Well, sir, you are wrong about that because now you get the right thing. Godspeed, General McGee, and thank you. More hotel Tell right after this. That'll do it for Hertel for this time. Uh, We so appreciate you again. It's just been amazing watching the numbers, the subscriptions, the downloads. Uh, You folks keep finding us, you keep listening, you keep watching, and we greatly appreciate it. Um, However you're watching, however you're listening, make sure you leave comments and ratings wherever you're at. Make sure you subscribe to all those different platforms we see you we notice you and we greatly appreciate you and those comments and ratings also let other people know that herd tells worth checking out we put a lot of effort into it to make sure we never ever waste your time we never want to insult your intelligence and we always want to give you good information turning down the noise of the news cycle we think there's more people that want that and by you doing that you help them find us we'll keep doing it as long as you keep watching and listening if you want to interact with us uh reach out to us email uh, show at gmail.com would love to hear from you um, questions comments epistles you got an article you want to touch on got a topic you want reviewed something you don't think's getting covered let us know we might even use it on the show keep your bearing be polite uh, but we'd love to hear from you and love to make you a part of this program because it's our program. If you don't watch and listen, I don't have anybody to talk to. This is a partnership, so feel free to reach out. Also, Twitter at Hertel Show. Uh, also, my Twitter handle, 4 for the fire. You can reach out to me that way. We'd love to hear from you. So wherever you are uh, across the street or around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well-fed, and we'll talk to you tomorrow for more Tell. Take care. <laughs> All the music on tell is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com.
0: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card.